morning. <clears throat> I'm going to start out down here with a little show and tell. Um, you remember that guy on TV that does all the info commercials under the title My Pillow? I think his name is Mike, isn't it? Well, I'm going to show you a different kind of pillow today. Now, if this looks like a rock, you got it right. That's exactly what it is. But it's not just any rock. This is the Jacob Stone Dream Pillow. We read about that in Genesis chapter 29, verse 11. He took a stone, put it under his head, and slept, and had a wondrous divine dream. Now this pillow, it's heavy. It is uh, ergonomically designed to raise your head up just enough to align your head and neck with your spine. Guaranteed to give you a restful and dreamy sleep. It comes in a variety of earth tone colors. It will not uh, get lumpy or uh, sag. It's going to keep its shape for as long as you have it. Now, you may want to get you one of these Jacob Dream pillows, guaranteed to give you restful nights. But that's not all. And when you get your Jacob Dream Pillow, you also will get with it a pillow that becomes a pillar. That's right, your own personal um, altar, a pillar of stone, just like Jacob. The next morning, he made a pillar of stone. Just take that stone. You get a couple of other rocks of your own choosing. Put them on top. And you now have a vertical stone pillar. You can come and offer your prayers, leave your offerings, and send up in your offerings the prayers through the smoke that arises up to heaven. Now, on your next trip to the Holy Lands, you may want to pick up one of these pillows. They're in the desert of Sinai, and they're all over the place, and they're free for the taking. But if you're not going to do that, you may order one to come directly to your house. The stone is free, absolutely no cost. It's the shipping and the handling you got to be careful about because each stone is priced on the cost of its weight. So, you may want to get you one of these stone pillows and give it a try. Now I'm going to go up here.
getting there, turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 35. Now you remember who Jacob is. The grand, grandson of Abraham and son of Isaac. And he also had an older brother named Esau. And there's a lot to be told in these chapters about Jacob and his life. And just as a background, if you can keep Genesis 35 open, you might want to turn over to Genesis 28. That's where Jacob had his pillow, pillar experience in the desert. And uh, I won't read the whole passage, but you remember he had an unusual dream. He, uh, he saw a ladder on the earth going up to the heavens, and he saw angels coming down and going back up. And that caught his attention. He looked up, and at the top of the ladder was God. And God said to Jacob, I am the God of your father, the God of your grandfather, and I will be your God. And I will protect you and help you and guide you. And then... He woke up from his dream, and Jacob said, Surely I am here in the place where God himself was, but I knew it not. And the next morning, he made that pillar, that monument to God, and he offered his prayers, his promises, and his vows. Now, Jacob made a covenant with God that day. It was a if-then covenant. He said, God, if you do all that you've already said you're going to do for me, protect me, clothe me, keep me safe, and return me to my father's house, then you are going to be my God. And he sealed that promise with a promise, a vow to give one-tenth of everything that he owned to the Lord. Now, Jacob named the place where he was Bethel, which means the house of God. And he had a life-changing experience there. What I want us to think about today, if there's been a time in your life, now, Jacob knew there was a God. He'd heard the stories of his father, and he'd heard the stories of Abraham. But he didn't yet know God himself. 
not until Bethel. And it changed his life. I want to ask you, do you remember a time in your life when God became real to you? Not just a name, not just a philosophical idea, but was there a time in your life when you began to understand that God was real and that he wanted to have a personal relationship with you? I remember when that happened to me many, many years ago. I was a nine-year-old boy in Fort Worth, Texas, in my home church, North Fort Worth Baptist Church. All of the classes in the Sunday school had come together for one group in the auditorium to meet our evangelist who was going to be preaching revival all week in the church. We met him. He shared the gospel of salvation and he offered an invitation for anyone who would come forward and receive Christ into their hearts. I was standing there and my hands were on the pew, gripping them just as hard as I could. I had my head bowed as if I was invisible and no one could see me. Suddenly I felt an arm reach across my shoulders and someone get up close next to me and I looked up and it was Mrs. Blackburn my ninth grade Sunday school teacher she leaned over and whispered Don don't you think it's time now for you to go forward and receive Christ into your heart she talked with me about that before and I'd always resisted but when she said those words, something just welled up inside of me. My emotions began to flow. I had tears. I was weeping, though I didn't know why. And I broke away from that pew, got to the aisle, and ran down to the front and took my preacher by the hand. He shared with me the plan of salvation, led me in the sinner's prayer, and I received Jesus Christ into my heart as my Savior. That was for me, Bethel. That's when God became real in my life. I'd love to hear your stories like that. But it's good every now and then to stop and think and remember what that first Bethel experience was like. Now, I've had several Bethel experiences since then where God touched me and spoke to me in a very special way. But I'll never forget, and I've never doubted 70 years later, that that experience was real that that's when I first really began to know God. Well, if you turn from chapter 28 
back over to chapter 35. It's only a few pages, but you're marching through time 20 years later. When God speaks to Jacob in chapter 35, 20 years has come and gone. And God speaks to Jacob and he says, Arise and go to Bethel and live there. And make an altar there to God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. And Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, Put away the foreign gods which are among you, and purify and change your garments. Let us arise and go to Bethel, for I will make an altar there to God who answered me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I have gone. And so they came to Jacob with all the foreign gods which they had and the rings which are in their ears. And Jacob hid them under an oak which was near Shechem. And they journeyed, and there was a great terror among the cities which were around them, and they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. And Jacob came to Luz, which is in the land of Cana, he and all the people that were with him. He built an altar called the place El Bethel, because there God had received revealed himself to him when he fled from his brother. Now there's some more verses and I'll read those in a moment as I get into my points of my sermon. A lot had changed in Jacob's life in 20 years. Earlier he was just a young frightened young man running for his life from his brother Esau for he had cheated him out of his birthright and the blessing of his father the covenant blessing 20 years later Jacob has two wives a half a dozen children boys all and um, servants camels sheep goats, cattle, and he's amassed a great deal of wealth and prosperity. And then one day God says to Jacob, I want you to get up and get back to Bethel and there make an altar to me and live there. I have an idea that a lot went through Jacob's mind as he heard that command of the Lord. I think that before Jacob could fulfill the command that God had given him, three things had to change or had to take place for Jacob. The first is he had to just simply stop and remember the promises and vow that he had made so long ago. 
He couldn't think about Bethel without remembering that tremendous experience where God revealed himself to him there in the desert. And as he thought about that, he had to remember that he promised God that he would do some things. And he had to ask himself, have I kept those promises? He made a vow to give one-tenth of everything he owned to God. Now, it's easy to be a tither when you have nothing. It's not as easy to be a tither when you have prosperity and wealth. I wonder if Jacob thought about that and whether he was up to the promise that he'd made about his tithe. But more importantly, about his commitment to the Lord. He had said in chapter 28, You do these things for me that you've said, then I will do this for you. I will make you my God. I think we have to think over the years as Christians, are we keeping the promises that we've made? Are we living up to what we thought we would be doing when we gave our hearts and lives to the Lord in salvation. Whether you call it a conversion, whether you call it being born again, whether you call it being saved, you remember the joy and happiness that that brought you. You remember how close God seemed to you then. Is it still that way today? Do we still serve Him with just as much devotion as we did in our first Bethel experience? He had to remember what He had gone through all those years before. I uh, heard a story years ago about a preacher who was flying on a plane. And he happened to be sitting next to a wealthy businessman. He knew that because the wealthy businessman was telling him so, that that's what he was, bragging about all that he had. And suddenly the pilot came over the speaker. And he said, folks, I'm sorry to tell you this, but we're experiencing some difficulty with the motor in our plane. We're going to try to work it out, and we'll get back to you, but we just thought you ought to know. Well, that was an anxious moment for everybody on the plane. Then a second message came. He said, folks, we're still having difficulty, and we haven't resolved the problem. And I'm telling you, it could be really serious. For those of you who pray, now's the time to start praying. Well, you can imagine the response of the people on the plane at that time. And the rich businessman just blurted out loud, Oh, God, don't let me die. Please, please, don't let me die. If you get me down off of this plane alive, I promise to give you a half of everything I own. Well, other 
others were praying, saying things too. After a few moments, the pilot came back on for the third time. He said, folks, I'm glad to tell you we've resolved our problem. Everything is fine. The plane should land as expected, but just a few minutes late. Well, the plane landed. The preacher got off the plane, like everybody else, happy of the results. And he saw the businessman over on the tarmac, down on his knees with his face, kissing the ground. And when the businessman got up, he went over and he said, Sir, I didn't get a chance to tell you, but I'm a minister. And I heard the promise that you made to God. And I know a lot of Christian organizations, and I'd be glad to help you in distributing what you promised God you'd give him. The businessman looked at him and said, Well, preacher, I just got up off the ground, and I made the Lord a better deal. I told him if he ever catches me on another one of these planes, he can have everything I own. Now, sometimes we're like that with the Lord. We make deals or we make promises that we don't always fulfill and keep. And when we're made aware of that, there's one thing to do. That's repent and get right with God. There's a second thing that had to happen in Jacob's life as long as well as with his family. He had to get rid of some things that he'd accumulated that didn't fit. Over 20 years, your life changes a lot. And Jacob gave instructions to his family, his children primarily. And he said, we're going to Bethel and stand in the presence of the Lord. But we can't go there like this. You've got some strange gods in your homes and in your rooms. You're going to have to get rid of them. You're dressing like the people in this culture, this pagan culture dress. You're going to have to put on new clothes, not new in that they weren't. They were clean, yes, but new in the sense of more appropriate clothing. And we're going to have to get rid of what doesn't belong. And they did that. They gathered it all up, put it in a big bag, I guess. And Jacob went out and dug a hole and buried it under an oak, it says. Jacob knew that he couldn't bring his family before the Lord with things as they were. There were some things in their lives that just didn't belong. And so they urged them to get rid of them and bury them. Now, I don't presume to know anything about you and your life personally, but I would ask you to consider, as a Christian, for however long it's been, a year or years like me, are there things that we picked up along the way that really just don't belong? things that don't fit who we are as Christians.
And if so, would you consider getting rid of them? I uh, had a church in Bogosa Springs, a new church, and one of the most stalwart members of the church was a widow lady, prayer partner, prayer warrior, as faithful as she could be. And I preached a sermon one Sunday in church on repentance and renewing your faith. And when I gave the invitation, I was surprised when she was the first one to come down. Now, as, as I saw her coming down, I thought, my goodness, what in the world would she have to repent of? What in the world would be in her life that wouldn't seem right to her? She came, she got down on the, at the front, and she kneeled and started praying, was tearful. I went over to counsel with her after a while. She said, Preacher, I'm, I'm sorry, but I, I'm here to tell you I, I need to repent. And I said, Fine. Is there something we need to talk about? She said, Well, it's the Dallas Cowboys. I said, It's the what? She said, well, you know they're my favorite team, and I root for them every week. And she said, I just realized when you were preaching, I get so emotional about that. When they don't do right or when they don't win, I get so upset, and it's just not right. I'm just too obsessed with the Dallas Cowboys, and I'm coming to repent. And I would have laughed, except I knew she was deadly serious. And so I prayed with her about her obsession and about repenting and putting in bright perspective how she felt about her favorite football team. I don't know what it might be for you, but if there's anything that's getting in the way of your faith experience and keeping you from being as close to the Lord as you want to be, you might think about what Jacob did. Get rid of it. Bury it in the past and move on with God. There's one other thing. And that is, Jacob had to come to a realization and accept the responsibility of the new name he was going to have. There in verse 9, God continues his dialogue with Jacob uh, in chapter 35, and he says this, and I'll just read these few more verses. Then God appeared to Jacob again, and when he came from Panoram, he blessed him, and God said to him, Your name is Jacob, but you will no longer be called Jacob. You shall be by your new name, Israel. God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation, a nation of nations shall come from you, and kings will come from you. And the land which I gave to Abraham and Isaac I'll give to you. 
I will give the land to your descendants after you. And then God went up in the place where he had spoken to him. And Jacob set up a pillar where he had spoken with him, a pillar of stone, and he poured out a libation on it, and he poured it on it. And Jacob named the place where God had spoken to him, Bethel. You see, Jacob lived up to his given name. It means the supplanter, or in other words, the deceiver. And you'd have to read all of Jacob's life to know he lived up to that name. But there came a time when God needed Jacob to put that character and that characteristics aside and become the new person that God wanted him to be, Israel, which means the prince of God. Now, Israel would live up to that name eventually. He would become the father of 12 sons who would then become the leaders of the 12 tribes of Israel. The same Israel, 12 tribes of Israel, that would wind up in Egypt and that God would deliver from Egypt through Moses and set them out into the promised land, the land of Canaan. Through those 12 tribes would come many kings, many prophets, prophecies about a special one who was to come. The Jews called him the Messiah. We call him Jesus. And Israel had a part to play in that process, but he would have to live up to the new name that he'd been given. You know, when we become Christians, born again, believers in Christ Jesus, we're given a new name. In fact, it's already been given to us, and it's locked up in heaven. And we won't learn about it until we get there in the, from the book of Revelation. But here on earth, we also have been given a new name as a believer, and that is the word Christian. Now, the early followers of Jesus from the apostles forward simply known as the followers of the way. But after a while, this name, Christian, began to be called and referred to them. It wasn't a complimentary name at first. It wasn't intended to be positive. It was actually intended to be a criticism of those early believers. But it meant literally little Christ and they were accused of going through life acting like and trying to be like little Christ well over time the Christians decided that's a pretty good name that's a pretty high calling 
That's something for us to be proud of and strive for, to live up to our new name. As God's adopted children, we've been brought into the family of God, and in, in this world we've been given the nickname Christians. But it's something we have to grow into. It's something we have to become into. It's something we have to think about on a regular basis in order to live up to the name of being Christ-like. I heard a story that I've never forgotten about the spiritual leader in India, Mahatma Gandhi. I may have even told this story to you before, but it's worth hearing again. Gandhi, of course, was a Hindu, but he left his homeland of India, went to London for his professional training and education to train as a barrister, or what we in America call a lawyer. While in England, Gandhi, interested in all things, spent some time studying Christianity. Most of his friends in the dorm where he lived were Christians. They went to Christian churches. He went to some Bible studies with them. He even attended some of the Christian churches there in London. Everyone thought by his interest that eventually Gandhi would become a Christian. But he never did. And years later, when someone asked him about that, Expressing that they thought he might one day be a Christian. He said something that's haunted me ever since I've heard it. He said, I would have accepted your Christ were it not for your Christians. Think about that for a moment. Gandhi had learned and knew everything he needed to know to become a Christian himself. But the Christians he knew kept him from making that commitment. We bear a new name as Christians, and we're called upon God and his time and his purpose and his plan to live up to what God has put for us. I don't know about you, but for me, there are times when I just have to stop and think and recommit myself by going back to Bethel.
help us to get rid of and bury anything along the way that doesn't belong as we fulfill your purpose for our life. And Lord, help us to be conscious every day to ask if we're living up to this new name.